Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back once again to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined uh, back as usual with Dr. Joe Boot and Nathan O'Black. For those of you who are regular listeners, uh, you'll know that uh, we've been calling this series Worldview Wednesday. Part of the reason is because we ordinarily release on a Wednesday. And if you, if you catch us as soon as it comes out, you'll know that uh, today is actually Friday. That's, a, that's some technical difficulties on our part. We've got them restored. Thanks for bearing with us. We'll look forward to seeing you, uh, being with you on a Wednesday as usual going forward. But uh, again, our apologies. We're breaking in some new equipment. Thanks for sticking with us on this uh, this Friday's episode of Worldview Wednesday. So guys, you back with us in studio. It's great to uh, great to have you. You've uh, you've been released from quarantine. And, uh, Apparently, <laughs> you're making me uncomfortable, Ryan. That's, uh, we were really sticking to that. Oh yeah, well, food was sure. being dropped off at the top of my basement stairs and mm. so on. Yeah, I didn't get that. Did you not? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, glad you're here, and uh, we're gonna get to get back into our uh, our topic for today. Joe, you recently spoke remotely to a, a congregation in the U.S on the subject of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. Uh, this past Sunday was Pentecost Sunday, celebrating and remembering the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, on the early church. And this this is a question, this is an issue, the, the whole affair with the Holy Spirit, the question of how the Holy Spirit relates to uh, to us and is involved with the the life and work of the Christian in uh, where we are in a a post-apostolic era, and especially, uh, I hope we're going to be able to get to some of the uh, some of the hesitancy or uh, uncertainty amongst a lot of a lot of our people in the the Reformed uh, Christian community. So I was hoping that we could just start with talking about what what role does the Holy Spirit continue to play in uh, in Christian life and in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a uh, I think very significant question in terms of even how we begin to think through and 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 wrestle with the question of the gospel and culture, which is something that uh, we are always concerned to uh, speak about as an institute, and uh, how we think through what it means to see culture transformed in terms of the the purposes of the kingdom of God, and it is um, uh, I think problematic when we neglect the core doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And ironically, this was not something that the Reformed tradition, beginning with Calvin, uh, was neglectful of. Uh, the Although certain elements may have been uh, de-emphasized, the Calvin was often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. And so I think it's important to uh, be reminded, uh, all of us, that, that the Holy Spirit is God the Lord. He is the third person of the Godhead. We mustn't be 
Unitarian, neither can we be binitarian. We must be Trinitarian hmm. in our understanding of uh, who God is, who the God of Scripture actually is. Um, some some years back, I was reading a passage in uh, the systematic theology of um, the Reformed theologian R.J. Rushduni, and uh, he had some interesting things to say, actually, about the work of the Spirit that really struck me, uh, especially as it relates to our thinking about cultural life. Hmm. And he said this, and I quote, uh, because man now now sees God as distant and the spirit as vague or sporadic, other gods rule over men. Institutions and persons become the Lord and the givers of life. As a result, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has lost its biblical force. It is thus urgently necessary to give renewed attention to this doctrine. The revival of Christendom depends upon it, for the doctrine of the Spirit confronts us with the mystery of God. We can, we can know him truly, but never exhaustively. He is most near to us in the Spirit, and yet never more remote in our capacity to grasp his infinite, inexhaustible being than, the third person, than in the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, end quote. There's a couple of things that struck me there. Um... First, the, the reminder actually of what the creed says uh, about the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. Um, and then this comment that the revival of Christendom, that is the revival of a, of a distinctly Christian view of culture, is dependent upon a re-emphasis uh, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and his power and work. And uh, this observation that he makes that... Uh, people now in a secularized culture seeing God as distant and the spirit as vague, even in Christian circles, means that mm. other gods, if God is somehow removed, you know, and far away, other gods then rule over men. And he says institutions and persons become the Lord and givers of life. And if ever we've seen an example of that, it's been the last 12, 18 months mm -hmm. uh, in our culture. Um, whereas scripture is plain, the creed is plain, the, the, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. So in um, a Trinitarian understanding, as we think about God's work and activity, all the work of God, creation and redemption, is uh, from the Father, through the Son, and by the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this a tendency or risk, especially within our Reformed community, to overlook or minimize or not th think adequately through the fullness of the work of the Holy Spirit is a mistake. And so I think Pentecost last weekend um, was an is an important reminder, you know, in the calendar of the church uh, of the, the, the sending of the Holy Spirit in this new and unique way upon, upon God's people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us... <clears throat> I, I kind of started with this because a lot of us are familiar with this phenomenon uh, amongst Reformed Christians, but you just mentioned that John Calvin, uh, uh, who was often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit, and the historic Reformers did not have that same uh, shyness about, about that third person of the Godhead. H how did we get to this point? What are we, uh, what are we solving for? Well... Uh, that's, um, that's not a straightforward question. Fair um, enough. <laughs> and, and, and I think, um, 
I think as we as we as we reflect a little bit on Pentecost itself and what was happening, what was going on, um, I think that we'll begin to um, we can begin to tease out a little bit about why uh, we may have reached a point in the progress of the faith mm. um, since the Reformation. Um, as to why maybe some of these, uh, some aspects, uh, some discomfort is is there with regard to some aspects of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And of course, usually you can trace it to misunderstandings, um, uh, over-emphasis on certain things, extremes being rushed to in certain quarters. Um, and of course, that's always been the case. I mean, you can go all the way back to the Montanists in the early church, among whom was the church father Tertullian, who mm. um, went a, somewhat astray on on some of their understanding in in this area. Um, but let let's it, what maybe the best way to answer it is to start with just you know a basic reflection on Pentecost itself and and what's going on. So um, I'm sure most of our listeners will be aware that Pentecost is the 50th day um after from the first sunday after passover so uh we have the resurrection of the lord and then you know it was on the day of pentecost these 50 days after passover after the first sunday after passover mm -hmm. that uh the disciples are then gathered um in this one place 120 yeah. of them in the upper room famously mm -hmm. there in acts chapter 2 mm -hmm. following the ascension that's correct. Yeah, following the ascension. I, did I say the resurrection? Yes, as a resurrection and ascension of the Lord. Thank you. So, and of course, they are told uh, in that um, sort of these last commands that the Lord is giving to the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until they are endued with power mm -hmm. uh, from on high. And and uh, which which among us doesn't recognize, you know, that we need power. Mm -hmm. We need power for the Christian life. We need power to serve the lord we need power in kingdom service we need power to even persevere mm -hmm. uh in our faith and witness so they're told to go and wait there and actually what's one of the fascinating things for me about pentecost is that by tradition um pentecost was thought to be the anniversary of the giving of the law at sinai um mm. and the the uh, there's a, there's a unique uh, connection there because of course apart from the 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 visible the physical phenomena that were going on you know the fire at the mountain and the shaking of the mountain and the the, the evident manifestation of the presence of of the Holy Spirit during the giving of the law um, there was also at Sinai the giving of the the, the plans for the temple. And the temple was the dwelling place, uh, the Holy of Holies. It was the dwelling place of God. It was God's throne room. It was where the, pres it was the presence of his spirit was made manifest. Mm. And the, the, the promise about the coming of the spirit uh, in Scripture, when we think about passages like um, Jeremiah 31 and, and Hebrews 8, are all about the, 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 the writing of the law uh, in this new covenant promise upon the hearts of God's people um, that you know, men, men will not say to their neighbor, know the Lord, because it will each know them from the least to the greatest so that there is a new location for the law. So 
this law that's given at Sinai and traditionally uh, on the anniversary, Pentecost is the anniversary of that event. Um, we have this the spirit being manifest in taking hold of that law and impressing it upon our hearts. So mm -hmm. the location of the law mm -hmm. of God, which has been a reformed emphasis since Calvin, a recovery very much of the, of the fullness of the law, is no longer um, on tablets of stone in an ark behind the curtains where the presence of God would be, would be made manifest over the mercy seat. But now the law's location is the heart of man because the scripture says we as God's people are the temple. We are the temple of mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can come back to that shortly when we talk about indwelling uh, of the Holy Spirit. But um, I think initially at least um, recognizing the, the significance of, of Pentecost the, the link to the law of God hmm. and uh, the the importance of the the, the manifest presence of God mm -hmm. you know, in our lives. Mm -hmm. And Ryan, you mentioned earlier that uh, you know a lot of us in reform circles have perhaps limited the work of the Holy Spirit. And I can certainly speak to my own experience growing up in a you know a very charismatic church where it was very typical to see speaking in tongues and being slain in the spirit and um, people in the middle of the service uh, prophesying about future events. Hmm. And, uh, you know, having gone through that experience, I'm now uh, very cautious uh, whenever there's any discussion of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I notice there is uh, almost a, a predisposition on my own account of uh, feeling really safe when we talk about the Holy Spirit being uh, limited to simply the illumination of Scripture. So I, I recognize mm -hmm. that as mm -hmm. an overcorrection in my own experience, but I think that might be common for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, um, I think you know that my own uh, upbringing was in mm -hmm. a Pentecostal context as a child. Um, and I like to say that, um, you know, I... I took the meat and I spat out the bones. And right. um, in any uh, tradition within um, evangelical faith that's indebted to the Reformation, there are things to be l learned. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very grateful, for, for example, for the sense of um, vigor, mm -hmm. uh, for the sense of the recognition of our need for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, mm -hmm. for a recognition of the sovereignty and... Um, uh, not just the sovereignty, but the immediacy mm. of the power and work of God, the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. and um, and our need for it, and, a, and, and not a sort of self-dependence on purely our intellectual acumen, mm -hmm. and and certainly not just that that the only thing the Spirit does is you know illuminate Scripture. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, as I as I look back, I sought under God to as take take the meat and, and spit out the things that um, were an incorrect emphasis or mm. an overemphasis. And, right. and I think in all the different traditions, we can see areas of weakness mm -hmm. and areas of strength. Mm -hmm. But I but it's but speaking to that particular point you made about, um, for example, um, this question of, of prophecy, mm -hmm. of, of prophesying, which is a very interesting one, because mm. um, in the older covenant, as we read scripture, we see that when the spirit of God came upon people, and I think this is particularly important for 
our understanding of the gospel and culture because what we as an institute are all about is um, speaking faithfully, we trust as faithfully as we can under God, mm-hmm. the word of God to culture, um, to, to man, right, to, to the, the human community. And uh, we've often talked on this p- program about uh, Christian philosophy being a form of Christian prophecy, mm-hmm, right? right? If cultural apologetics mm-hmm. is a form of Christian prophecy, it's telling out the word of God. And when uh, the Spirit came upon people in the Older Testament, they prophesied. Mm-hmm. Uh, they told forth the word of God. And um, uh, very often that had nothing to do with future events it was mm-hmm. often actually a reminder about past events if you look at the prophets and most of the time they're reminding uh, the people of god about what god has done and why have you forgotten right um but the, the the spirit of god rushed upon people and when he came upon them they prophesied and sometimes it was even against their will or at least without any intention on their part i mean saul yeah and some of his servants being the perhaps the paradigmatic example of that mm-hmm. when the spirit rushed mm-hmm. upon them and they prophesied and actually, Moses, the great prayer of Moses in Numbers 11 is that would that all I'm quoting now, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, mm-hmm. that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And uh, I mean, what a prayer to utter. And of course, this is the very thing that is fulfilled mm-hmm. in the new covenant when the Holy Spirit doesn't just come upon us, but dwells in us. Uh, is that we are all um, prophets, priests, and kings in the Lord Jesus Christ, the the offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We are, as Scripture says, a royal priesthood. We are a kingly priesthood and a holy nation, and we're called to tell out, to to speak forth Mm. the Word of God. Um, And we can only do that truly and faithfully in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So... Um, would that all God, the Lord's people, were prophets. I mean, we mm. ought to pray that today, mm-hmm. not in the sense that um, you know the Bible is clear that, that, that the church is built on a particular foundation, and that mm-hmm. foundation is the office of the apostle and prophet. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be judged by the measure in which an Older Testament prophet was judged in his <clears throat> forthtelling um, of the word. I mean, if you were a false prophet, that had very serious... Mm-hmm. very serious consequences okay. mm-hmm. um so we're not saying here that there that that um there is an exact parallel between say what we're doing on this program or when i enter the pulpit and what isaiah was doing in the office of the prophet uh i think you know it's important we haven't got time to talk about all those things mm-hmm. now but mm-hmm. but that those are of course distinctions we need to make there is a there is a foundation uh, of the word of god as given through the apostles and prophets, that is the foundation. But the Spirit of God is in us, and we must tell forth the Word of God. And and, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that um, sometimes even the word prophecy starts to right. sort of freak people mm-hmm. out. I think so. Um, yeah. As though something weird and wonderful is mm-hmm. being... Um, well, it's certainly wonderful, but it's not <laughs> weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are to, um, under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit to courageously and boldly speak the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certainly is an aspect of our, an aspect of our calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting as you're, uh, as you're describing that, as you're describing Moses prayer and the, uh, 
the tabernacle as the the place where the presence of God dwells. Uh, sort of holding that uh, in parallel with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit here right. in the uh, in the New Testament, and that uh, that boldness to engage culture that uh, we receive from the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to see another another point at which Scripture is all, always uh, holding in mind the expansion of the kingdom, the inclusion of all the nations, and uh, the just just to think about the role of the the Holy Spirit in that is is kind of cool. Yes, I mean, whenever the the Holy Spirit is at work in these unique ways, there's always what we might say as a missiological mm. purpose mm-hmm. element to it. Yeah. Um, and of course, with the new covenant, um, with the with the coming of the Spirit. Um, there is this this expansion, this extension um, of, of uh, to a universal empire of the Lord Jesus Christ, mm. uh, where the covenant people now is is uh, to be drawn from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, mm-hmm. um, and this is of course typified on the day of Pentecost mm-hmm. when uh, in this. Um, moment of dramatic uh, power uh tongues of fire are seen upon the heads of the disciples mm-hmm. and uh they're they're in a place where um the because of the festival of pentecost uh, proselytes to the jewish faith from all over the known world have come up for the festival mm-hmm. and uh the the disciples begin to speak in um in tongues um, and the, the those who have come to the festival hear the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed in their own language, and uh, as we know, three thousand are converted in 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 a day in this in this mm-hmm. sermon of Peter's uh, on the day of Pentecost, as he describes to them what they're actually seeing. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, uh, which shows you that they were prof- proselytes; they were familiar with the scriptures. Um, and he goes on then to explain the, the significance of the gospel, and part of that is it's bursting every ethnic boundary. That's right. Every previous boundary that many of the Jews had thought were, 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 was was binding or was was containing, if you will, the uh, the God of Scripture and His um, messianic purpose. Here it breaks down, uh, as was actually clearly clearly taught in the Old Testament. Uh, that every boundary is broken down. Mm-hmm. And so this, this speaking in tongues in the languages of the known world at that at that time, there's actually a list there of the different um, peoples and, and, and nations that were represented, manifests just that, that the kingdom is exploding, that mm. the, 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 mm-hmm. the reign... In a good Christ, way. In a good way. Yeah, the reign of Christ now, the reign of God is being manifest and made known in every single corner of the earth. Mm. And this is exactly what was promised uh, by the prophets. That's not to say that the people of God in the Older Testament was a purely ethnic people. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it says that when the, uh, we read in the Older Testament that when the Hebrews left Egypt, they left a mixed multitude. I mean, some Egyptians believed the word of God. And as you know, as along the way, they gathered and picked up other peoples. Mm-hmm. Um it was always a covenant people, but there was this sense that it was that it was really the preserve of the Hebrew nation of Israel, that God was their preserve. And 
you see even when Jonah heads out to Nineveh uh, to preach that um, he's none too happy and uh, he probably ran in the other direction because he knew that his own people would be none too happy about this. But we see Amos and Isaiah preaching to the pagan mm. nations. And so this was always a tension for the Hebrews, this missiological purpose. While here now, the Holy Spirit breaks every uh, restriction, um, every sense of boundary or border mm between the peoples of the earth and we'll maybe come to that a bit more in when we when we talk about I want to talk a little bit in a minute anyway yeah about um about Babel hmm. um and um the significance of uh of, of what's happening there yeah and it's interesting too Joe I think when you think about Pentecost uh missiologically you're much less likely to try to isolate those events we see in Acts 2 right right yeah um the uh, and it's interesting too that um, the what goes on in Acts chapter two is not purely a one-off right event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets repeated in Acts chapter four, and I think this is probably it might be worth wandering down this little byway. Uh, this little tributary <laughs> off our conversation for just a second. Mm-hmm. Yep, we're here for this. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I think this is one of the, um, sometimes one of the sticking points um, that is problematic for those of us in the Reformed f- families of churches. Um, the, when when this begins, and, and the initial thing is that we see that it's, it's ultimately about the witness of the kingdom to the nations that you've picked up on. Mm-hmm. And then, but that's not a one-off experience. Right. It's it, because it's not primarily about having an experience. And I think this is where sometimes the Pentecostals and the Charismatics go astray, mm. is that it becomes about um, my acquisition of a gift or my acquisition of an experience of the Holy Spirit or whatever, rather than it actually being about the kingdom of God and the extension of the kingdom through the mighty working and power of the Holy Spirit, where, where God takes hold of us for his purposes, mm. not me taking hold of an experience or pursuing an experience for my personal sense of fulfillment mm-hmm. or personal reward or whatever it may be. Um, and, in, and in Acts 2, the Spirit comes upon them and they, are, they speak with new tongues. And we see this expansion of the God adding to their number and 3,000 are converted in one day and we, all the, the rich theological significance of all of that. But then in Acts 4, when they're gathered together again, they have the almost almost the same experience again. The same thing happens again mm-hmm. in, in, in Acts 4. So this is actually, this is not their conversion. Right, so those who try to say, well, you know, this is just the, you know, Acts 2 is sort of the birth of the church and people are being regenerated right. and they're getting converted. Um, <clears throat> I find, I have to confess, I find it very difficult to buy that biblically. In, in John, um, I think it's uh, John 20, uh, Jesus has already breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They're witnesses of the resurrection. They've witnessed the ascension. They're gathered together in obedience to the Lord. These are believers. These are regenerate believers. Mm-hmm. And so on Pentecost, it's fundamentally about witness. It's about power, the power of the Spirit. Uh, and it's about the expansion, the, the, the work of the kingdom of God, 
coming in this new way so that it's no longer just an external thing, the Spirit of God rushing upon somebody so that they pro- right. prophesy and then leaving them. Mm. Now there is an indwelling and an and an endowment of power right. from on high. And actually at the end of Acts 4, we see that the result, very specifically the result of what takes place, is um, boldness, uh, a holy boldness and power for witness. If you look in Acts 4.31, the result is boldness mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. It's boldness for the witness. It's boldness for the kingdom purpose that the Christian is called to. So I think we have to, uh, they can't have been converted in Acts 2 and then converted again in Acts 4 right. and, and, and as though we can just write it all off in terms of a conversion experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a missiological significance to all of this. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about power for witness. It's about the power we need to see culture come under, hear the gospel and come under the total lordship of Jesus of uh, yeah. Jesus Christ as, through yeah. the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord right. and giver of life. Right, so as we're continually filled by the Holy Spirit, it's not a one-time deal and done. Absolutely, right. and actually that's why I think Paul is bold enough to give us a command mm. when he says, you know, don't be drunk with wine where it mm. is in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Uh, that's a command in Ephesians 5. So, um I think if we if we are commanded to do something, uh, uh, this is something that um, is not uh, a, a one-off event mm-hmm. that we just sort of look back and say, oh, on such and such a date, I was you know filled with the Spirit. I mean that that may be so that people can, in some instances, say there was a particular a day or time on which they sure. felt sure. Uh, a tremendous sealing of the Holy Spirit in their lives or mm-hmm. a tremendous sense of. God's power for witness and boldness, or even a particular gift. Maybe we can come to that in just a second too. But um, the, the the reality is that this was this is not just about a one time deal. Mm-hmm. This is a command that we are we go on being filled with the Spirit in our lives, so that we have the power that we need to fulfill the task that God has given to us in Christ. Mm-hmm. And perhaps uh, switching gears a little bit here. Um, so at Pentecost, you have people speaking the gospel in a variety of different languages. And I know, Joe, you've spoken about this before, but you can look at that in a lot of ways uh, as a reversal of what happened uh, at the Tower of Babel. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so I think um, there are a number of things that are richly significant about this. And again, as, as a way of sort of... Um, just a comment on a tributary, if you will, on, on uh, off this main river we're talking about. Um, it's clear that, that on the day of Pentecost, the languages, the glossolalia, the languages in which they spoke, were the languages of uh, the, the nations of the world. The, these were right. languages that, yep. um, uh, that if you knew the language, you actually understood it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Parthians, Medes, exactly. Macedonians, as mm-hmm. they list them. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they're hearing uh, specific human languages, and, and, and that seems to be clear. That's very clear in Acts 2. It's not quite so clear, though, in, in places like 1 Corinthians 14, mm-hmm. uh, where it seems that um, speaking in tongues is more than, in, in many instances, is more than, uh, speaking in a known human language. Mm. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems that this is a spiritual language. There is mm-hmm. a, a heavenly language that actually requires interpretation. Um, and uh, 
Paul is clear that people are speaking a mystery to the Lord. And so I think to be fair to our charismatic and Pentecostal friends um, and brothers and sisters in the Lord there, uh, I don't think we can just say, yes, tongues was a one-off miracle on the day of Pentecost where people heard the gospel in their own language. It seems pretty clear from what Paul is saying about the nature of tongues and the importance of interpretation and speaking a mystery to the Lord where the mind is unfruitful, that there is also more going on there. Um, and maybe that's beyond the scope of this program for us to talk about this because our, our focus is, 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 is cultural apologetics. But I think that's important to say too, that um, there, is, there is more going on here in Scripture. But the, doesn't, that doesn't minimize the significance of what you've just said, Nathan, about the Tower of Babel. And I think mm -hmm. this is one of the um, brilliant observations that I first read some years ago in the work of F.F. F. Bruce, uh, where he actually says the event, and I quote, was nothing less than the reversal of the curse of Babel. And mm. uh, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that uh, at Babel, you have um, uh, an attempt to build a, a, an idolatrous and artificial unity um, where everyone at that time is speaking the same language. So the human race is speaking the same language. And they are not dispersing across the whole earth. They're coming together to build a tower, uh, which we shouldn't have in our minds there, a skyscraper that, mm. you know, is touching the clouds and they're just trying to make the tallest building ever. You know, it's the CN Tower from mm. the ancient world. Mm -hmm. um, no, it's, it's a it has religious significance. It was a tower probably dedicated to the heavens, heavenly bodies, spiritual powers. Mm -hmm. um, there's Nimrod is, is this mighty man who is against the Lord. He's a rebel against the Lord. He's trying to, and he actually is the establisher of, of various great cities. Um, so there is an idolatrous purpose here. And the goal, of course, is to, in some way to restore paradise, to create some right. kind of a human utopia, right. a mm -hmm. socio-political order uh, under false gods or a false god um, as an artificial basis of unity. And God's response to this, and of course, uh, we might argue, well, that modern sort of globalism and modern utopias are a similar uh, attempt mm -hmm. uh, to, to do the same thing. But always using the rhetoric of unity. Always, mm -hmm. Exactly, always mm -hmm. using the same idea of, of, of gathering people together, of breaking down barriers yeah, right. of, oh. of, of, of love and unity mm -hmm. of the human race and so mm -hmm. on. So God comes down, he looks at this project, and he confuses the languages. Mm. And people are spread out throughout the known world. Uh, um, and we're told, actually, that the kingdom of heaven is every tribe, tongue, people, nation who have been made a kingdom of priests to God. I think that's God's endorsement of a form of Christian nationalism there, that nation mm. states are his idea. And Paul is actually very clear about that in Acts chapter 17. Mm -hmm. um, God had a purpose in it. Um, of spreading out and determining the peoples and determining their boundaries of their habitation so that they might seek after him. So there was a missiological purpose in God's confusing of their language. Mm. He confused mm -hmm. them, scattered them, so that they might actually seek the living God. That's very interesting. Yeah. And then on the day of Pentecost, the curse of confusion of, these of the nations is reversed. Mm -hmm. Because as the Spirit comes, these people all hear the gospel of the kingdom, of the salvation, the reign, and the rule of Jesus Christ in their own language that brings them together in one people as the body of Christ, various people's languages and ethnicities, 
in terms of the new and true and only source of unity. Mm-hmm. Here is the mm-hmm. true source of interpretation. Here mm-hmm. is the answer to existential isolation. Here is the answer to postmodern confusion. Here is the answer to historicism and its mm-hmm. radical cultural relativism. And it is not the destruction of male and female and of our cultural distinctiveness. It's the bringing together of those distinct distinctives in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that we can come around the Lord's table as one body mm-hmm. under the root of humanity, the root of a new humanity, the second Adam, the last Adam, the head of a new race, mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's mm-hmm. so much hope mm-hmm. there because that is not something we can accomplish ourselves. Precisely. Mm-hmm. That's and, right. And I think that is particularly important to emphasize in a context where people might accuse us of uh, the notion that we think we're building the kingdom of God and we're going to establish the kingdom and Mm -hmm. we're going to transform culture. That is not the message. Mm -hmm. The message is it's the Lord and giver of life, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who comes to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment who comes to equip his people and his church and who provides this the, the, the basis of unity and is the source of all true interpretation. Mm-hmm. And the answer to all the radical division in our culture today, all people breaking up into these tiny uh, victim groups mm-hmm. um, and shouting about their own sense of meaning, their own identity, mm-hmm. uh, endless identities, right. is all because of a spirit of confusion. Mm-hmm. As you turn from Christ and the work of the Spirit to babe back to Babel and paganism, what are you going to get? Not unity. That's right. Not cultural and social cohesion. You're only going to get confusion, mm-hmm. babble. Mm-hmm. You're going to get babbling, mindless mm-hmm. babbling, mm-hmm. Uh, where nobody can understand one another anymore. And that's why it's a mark of God's judgment. And I would mm-hmm. argue that actually judgment on an idolatrous apostate culture is mm-hmm. babble. Mm-hmm. It's gibberish. It's the manipulation of language. It's language games to destroy meaning. Uh, And um, it was only because of the faith that we built a sense of cultural unity, purpose, direction for history, a sense of moving from creation to fulfillment. That became the Western view of history. And it was, of course, bastardized and copied by Marxism and to an extent by Islam. Um, But the original is the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is bringing about his purposes in history Mm -hmm. by the power of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. to establish his kingdom um, in the earth. And and it can only happen by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that's the beauty of the Christian life, is that God does not just rest upon us for a moment and then leave us. Mm -hmm. The Holy Spirit indwells us, Mm -hmm. and he gives us various gifts, severally as he wills. So it's, it's, it's central, it must be central to us, this notion that the Holy Spirit doesn't just regenerate us, which he does, <laughs> but he gives us everything that we need for, for life and service. And, and that the, when the world is emptied of God uh, in a secular worldview and even in a sort of Christian context where we've been so impacted by secularism that we start to see God as vague and absent, mm. We have to recover this sense of the immediacy of the presence of God. Let me let me just quote to you something that again struck me as I was reviewing it um, by uh, Dr. Rush Dooney. 
who uh, a, a reformed thinker who was reflecting on this he says the regenerate know and see the spirit in his power and witness they are never alone the world is never empty for them the deadly effect of the modern world and life view has been to empty the world of god and also of life and meaning beyond man the result is the terror and dread of existentialism and the flight into fantasy and imagination drugs sexual experimentation and anything man can conceive of as an answer to the void. Mm. And here's the key. No theology can do justice to the faith which limits or silences the spirit. Mm. All such theologies smell of dust and death. And I think that that is the risk of a de-emphasis on the spirit, that in the name of being cautious or being mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, word-centered, mm-hmm. Biblical, um, even being biblical, even exactly. That are we being biblical enough? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the question. So, do you remember how a few weeks ago we had Jonathan Burnside on talking about God's law? And he said even some of those who are interested in God's law, he said, um, uh, and want to emphasize it, don't emphasize it enough. They don't mm-hmm. go deep enough into it. Mm-hmm. And I think if we really want to emphasize the word, we have to remember and look at carefully what the word says about the power. Um, and uh, and the and the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the the emphasis, I think, um, the the need for renewed emphasis in the life of the church on the power and work of the Holy Spirit isn't me saying everybody needs to go and chase after a spiritual experience and a particular gift. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul warns the church in Corinth not to be chasing after and putting over emphasizing particular gifts. In fact, a scripture, Paul is clear. He says that it's the spirit who gives severally as he wills. We don't all have the same gifts. Um, we don't all have the same um, uh, uh, anointing from the Holy Spirit um, in the sense that um, John, the apostle John does say you have an anointing from the Holy One, but but some people are anointed for different tasks. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why we lay hands on people. <laughs> Uh, to anoint them for a task, perhaps for eldership, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and the Paul says, do all prophesy, do all speak with tongues. And of course, his conclusion there is, is no, it's the mm-hmm. spirit who determines what gifts we have. So this is not about saying um, everybody needs this gift or that gift. Mm-hmm. What we are saying, though, is that we need power. Mm-hmm. And we need everything that the Holy Spirit wants to give us and the various gifts he does have for us in our lives. Uh, so that we can fulfill the kingdom mission. And given the importance and centrality of this, and we talked about um, being being commanded to go on being filled with the Spirit and the way in which even the apostles experienced this, uh, what do we do if we don't feel, you know, if, if our theology is starting to smell of dust and death, that it's just dry formality, that it's just a dry commitment to the three forms of unity, perhaps, or mm. just a dry commitment to the creed or the confession? but it's, it's lacking life and it's mm-hmm. lacking vigor and it's mm-hmm. lacking power, mm-hmm. then what does scripture say? Actually, very, it's very easy. Uh, we're told, ask. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if any of you is lacking, um, we must ask. That is the, 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 the basic requirement of the Bible. In fact, Jesus himself says in Luke 11, uh, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we're not asking for an experience. We're asking that the Lord and giver of life, God, the Holy Spirit, would endue us with his power and with everything we need 
so that we can serve him and glorify him. And I do think that um, some of the timidity mm-hmm. that uh, is inflicting the church even now in our culture, mm-hmm. some of the fear, uh, some of the unwillingness to challenge and speak to culture right. mm-hmm. uh, cogently. So, yeah. so much pressure yeah. to fit in, to go along with things. Mm-hmm. It, I, I think that a lot of that is because we actually haven't asked for the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. That we're lacking what we see coming upon the apostles in Acts 2 and again in Acts 4 and what we see Paul commanding God's people to ask for, what Jesus himself tells us to ask for. Um, the result, as we see in Acts 4, 31, is boldness. Mm-hmm. And I think we're lacking boldness to challenge ideologies, uh, to challenge paradigms that are confronting us right now, mm-hmm. uh, to challenge the powers that be that are oppressing the church. And if we had more of the power of the Holy Spirit to to empower and quicken us in our witness and in our cultural apologetic, he is, remember, the Lord and the giver of life. He is to be adored and worshipped, um, and we are to ask him for everything that, that we need. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's interesting that, um, let me let me ask people to just tolerate one more quote from, from Rush Dooney, um, uh, in his systematic theology, where he says, and I quote, a charismatic emphasis uh, should be highly Calvinistic, but it is not normally so, Hmm. and is commonly very alien to such a stress. That is by me, he means that you don't often find a strong Calvinistic emphasis in the charismatic churches. But then he goes on, likewise, those who are Calvinistic and who stress God's sovereignty should logically be very emphatically given to a high emphasis on the doctrine of the Spirit. This, however, is clearly not usually the case. It may be that sovereignty is confused with an exclusive transcendence so that imminence is seen as a compromise. Mm. I think that's a very interesting insight hmm. uh, to uh, not only that um, the the those who have a more charismatic emphasis are not sufficiently Calvinistic in their emphasis in terms of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And those who are more Calvinistic and reformed in their orientation tend to lack an emphasis on the doctrine of the Spirit. And is it possible that actually in our desire to preserve and emphasize the sovereignty of God, uh, that we think that somehow emphasizing also his imminence in our lives, his presence in our lives, his immediacy, his nearness in Mm -hmm. our lives might somehow be a compromise, that we are compromising his transcendence if we emphasize his imminence. No, that's a mistake. Um, God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life is imminent, indwelling us. He is nearer to us than we are to ourselves, Mm. and we desperately need his power in our lives to fulfill the kingdom mandate. Mm-hmm. That's a good word. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, speaking truth to, to uh, the powers that be that just reminded me of uh, a housekeeping item that I should have mentioned at the beginning, which is that for a couple of weeks now, we've been pledging to speak about bill C 10, uh, which here in Canada is commonly being known uh, being referred to as the internet censorship bill. And we haven't forgotten about that. We will, uh, we will get to that. We've reached out to a good friend of ours who's a lawyer to ask him for some comment and to join us. And he says, says to us, 
I'd love to as soon as I get my head around it, as soon as I've worked through it myself. So that's uh, that's something that's coming. Uh, but uh, in regards to prophesying to the powers that be, we will uh, we will uh, come back to that. Joe, Nate, thanks a lot for being together today. It's good to be with you again. Unity in the spirit, Ryan. Hallelujah. From all of us at the Ezra Institute, this has been Worldview Wednesday, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. We'll see you next week. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time